president of COP28 is an oil executive, is the head of the Abu Dhabi Petroleum Company. It's like giving the arsonists the responsibility to put out the fire. That's exactly what that COP process has become. This is imperialism. And imperialism is death, is destruction. And clearly, one bully, the U.S., just decides to ignore everybody else and does whatever it wants. I refer often to Martin Luther King in the context of the civil rights movement. He said, I have no time for the tranquilizing drug of gradualism and incrementalism. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, folks, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Real Progressives is holding an end-of-the-year fundraiser. If you want to help us out, this is the time to do so. It is because a generous donor is matching all contributions. We are a 501c3. Your donations are tax deductible. In other words, until the end of December, any money you donate will be doubled. Your donations allow us to continue producing important content like this podcast or like RP Live, our webinar series, even book clubs. Speaking of RP Live, this week's podcast is the recording of our most recent webinar. The guest speaker was Hamza Hamashen, talking about his book, Dismantling Green Colonialism, Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. We've done several episodes with Hamza about this subject. It is that vital. We want to make sure you get it and hear it and absorb it. Take action on it. Enjoy the episode. And if you want to donate, go to our website, realprogressives.org, and do so. Thank you so much. Welcome to RP Live, everybody. We're Real Progressives. Kami John, my co-host, why don't you tell people about Real Progressives? Well, we are an activist organization. We try to find that intersection between MMT and class analysis. We've got a website, realprogressives.org. It's got a lot of cool stuff, including our 200 54 episodes of our flagship podcast, Macro and Cheese, and lots of other cool stuff. Find us on Facebook. We have two YouTube channels. And we actually take the most recent Macro and Cheese podcast, and then we have a little gathering on Tuesday night called Macro and Chill, where we invite people to come and do a little discussion and analysis of the latest podcast. And I think that's about it. Would you like to tell them about our fundraiser? Sure. We have an end-of-the-year fundraiser. One of our very, very generous donors is matching funds, so anything you give doubles. Also, 
for one time only. If you give us $100 or more, you will get a free T-shirt. We have a great T-shirt. Mark, what does it say? Your taxes don't fund the U.S. government. The government funds you or something like that. It's much cooler than I'm making it. <laughs> so what we're going to do in our RP Live is our guest Hamza is going to introduce himself and do a presentation. With that, I introduce our guest, Hamza Hamashane. Thank you, Hamza. Thanks for having me. Thanks for Real Progressive for organizing this and giving me the opportunity to share some thoughts and reflections around the climate energy crisis in the Arab region based on a recently released book by Pluto Press called Dismantling Green Colonialism, Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. I prepared a presentation. I'll introduce myself quickly. I'll try to tell you a story and make it more interesting so we can have a discussion afterward. So my name is Hamza Hamushan. I'm originally Algerian. I'm a London-based Algerian researcher and activist. Currently, I work for a think tank for social movements called the Transnational Institute, which is based in Amsterdam. I'm their North Africa program coordinator, and I work on various questions, including extractivism, food sovereignty, energy and climate justice, and other issues that relate to trade, investment, militarization, and border imperialism. So today I'm going to present, as I said, the main argument of the book by telling you various stories from several countries in the Arab region, just for you to get a sense of what is happening in there in terms of green colonialism. But usually when I present the book, I start by saying something about what is taking place in Palestine now. I always say that we cannot talk about colonialism, green or otherwise, about dismantling it, about decolonization, about environmental and climate justice in the Arab region, and turn a blind eye to the ongoing genocide, the ethnic cleansing, the mass displacement, the mass slaughter and repression of Palestinians perpetrated by a racist apartheid settler colonial state of Israel with the active support and abetting by imperialist powers from the United States to the European Union to France to Germany and others. And I think we need to rise and object collectively and internationally against what is happening right now and call for an immediate ceasefire. In the long term, we need to be uncompromisingly in support for Palestinians' liberation struggle and the right for self-determination. So I think this is something that we need to put at the heart of our discussions when we talk about decolonizations, because I've seen that decolonization has become a fashionable world everywhere, especially in Western academia. Everybody is talking about decolonize that and decolonize this. But then when it comes to true material decolonization, to true decolonization struggles like the Palestinian ones, we see complicity, we see silence, which is shameful. So let's go into the arguments of the book. 
Why do we talk about the energy transition? Why do we talk about the transition towards renewable energy? There is a lot of hype and talk all over the world, from mainstream media to politicians, even to companies, talking about that needed transition. We talk about it because simply there is an escalating ecological crisis and an intensifying climate breakdown. And the manifestation of that ecological and climate crisis are clear all over the world, but also clear in the Arab region as well. And we see the impacts from the exhaustion of natural resources, the loss of soil fertility, environmental destruction, pollution, as well as clear impacts of the climate crisis from desertification, severe droughts, recurrent heat waves, wildfires that we've seen in Algeria, for example, in the last two, three years, flooding, like the deadly floodings that we've seen in Libya, more than 10,000 dead, to the rise of sea levels and other forms and manifestations of the climate crisis. And this ecological and climate crisis does not happen in a vacuum. It intersects with other forms of crisis. The food crisis, the energy crisis, the socioeconomic crisis, and the political crisis. And personally, I don't think we can understand or talk about the ecological crisis without grappling with the capitalist extractivist model of development that has been imposed on the region since colonial times by imperialism. What do we mean by extractivism? Extractivism is a mode of accumulation and appropriation that has been unleashed all over the planet since the 15th century with the European conquest of the Americas. And as you can imagine, this process has been shaped by blood, by exploitation, by slavery, by plunder, and similar processes took place in the Arab region since the colonial period in the 19th century. By extractivism briefly refers to the removal of large quantities of natural resources that are not processed or processed to a limited degree, especially for export to the international market. And in this sense, extractivism is not just related to fossil fuels or to minerals. It is also present in agribusiness, intensive farming, intensive forestry and fishing, and even tourism with its intensive water use. Throughout my field visits to various sites of extractivism, from fossil fuels to mining to agribusiness, alongside environmental destruction, pollution, the prevalence of diseases, I saw what the dependency school describes as the development of underdevelopment or the development of maldevelopment, or what the British Marxist David Harvey calls accumulation by dispossession. And I want you to remember that concept because I'm going to return to it when I talk specifically about renewable energy. So it is clear from what I've seen that we are seeing at the same time two contradictory phenomenal tendencies. We have the wealth in natural resources, but at the same time we have poverty, 
and employment, underdevelopment, and environmental destruction. And this is basically the paradox of the extractivist model of development that creates what we call sacrifice zones. And also, please remember that concept of sacrifice zones. So that model creates sacrifice zones with sacrificial people where their bodies, their health, their air, their environment, their water are being sacrificed in order to maintain the accumulation of capital or the accumulation of profits for companies. And the examples are numerous from Ain Saleh, which is a town in Algerian Sahara. Ain Saleh is one of the richest gas towns in the whole African continent. But when you look at its infrastructure, it's very poor. The only hospital that they have, they call the hospital of death. And the examples are so numerous for Indonesia, Morocco, Egypt, Libya, and also they go beyond the Arab region. They go to other parts of Asia, Latin America, and Africa. So in the midst of this intensifying ecological and climate crisis, we know that a transition to a more sustainable system has become inevitable if we want the survival of humanity and the planet. But in the process of doing so, justice is not guaranteed. And I'll explain why there are a lot of threats and risks in that transitional process towards a better sustainable system. So every year, actually currently, the COP28, the climate talks, the international climate talks are being held in the Emirates, in the Arab region. They started actually on the 30th of November and end on the 12th of December. But these climate talks are happening every year and they've been happening for almost three decades now political leaders, their advisors, the media representatives, corporate lobbyists, including lobbyists from the fossil fuel industry, attend those climate talks. But despite the threat that is right now escalating against our planet, these decision makers maintain the increase in CO2 emissions. The CO2 emissions keep rising year after year. And we haven't seen them going down except for one year, which is the first year of the pandemic. And the Swedish activist Greta Thunberg is right when she described them as blah, 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 because that process has simply failed and is bankrupt. And in the Arab region hosted five climate talks since their inceptions in 1995. The most recent one are the COP22 in Marrakesh in 2016, COP27 in the beautiful democracy of Egypt, and right now in the Emirates. And something that I wanted to highlight here while the Emirates or the COP28 is ongoing is that the president of COP28 is an oil executive, is the head of the Abu Dhabi Petroleum Company. Let's use this analogy. It's like giving the arsonists the responsibility to put out the fire. That's exactly what that core process has become. It has been hijacked by corporate interests, 
we've seen the number of fossil fuel lobbyists increasing year after year. Like if we compare only from COP27 last year to COP28 this year, the number of fossil fuel lobbyists quadrupled. And there are research, documented research around this. So basically it has been hijacked by the fossil fuel industry, but more so, but generally by the corporate sector that has been pushing for profit-making false solutions, what they call carbon trading, net zero, nature-based solutions, and so forth. And basically these solutions are just manifestation of the same paradigm of capital accumulation, but just with a green face or with a green veil. And I think it is important to say this. So we don't just rely on the COP process. We need to build power from outside to force the decision makers to take action. So let's speak specifically now on the renewable energy sector and the green transition. There is this colonial orientalist environmental narrative actually that has been developed in my home country, Algeria, since colonial times under French colonialism, where the desert in the Arab region or the Saharas in the Arab region are being described as vast empty land, sparsely populated, and now representing an Eldorado of renewable energy, constituting a golden opportunity for Europe to get its cheap green energy while maintaining its energy intensive production and consumerist lifestyles. But this narrative is obviously deceptive because first of all, it ignores questions of property and sovereignty. I mean, popular sovereignty and who owns those lands and those resources, but also masks ongoing neo-colonial relations and relations of dominations, hierarchies between North and South that allow for the plundering of resources, the grabbing of land, and the exclusion of local communities from decision-making related to such projects and related to transitions towards renewable energy. And now I'm going to give you, just in a minute or two, a few concrete examples of those dynamics, those neo-colonial dynamics, or those extractivist, green extractivist dynamics. But first of all, I'd like to define what I mean by green colonialism or, or green grabbing. So green colonialism for me is the extensions of the colonial relations of plunder, theft, exploitation, as well as the dehumanization of the other to the green era or to the period of renewable energy with the accompanying externalization or the shifting of social and environmental costs from the cores of this system, mainly the global north, to the peripheries of the system, the poorer countries and the less advanced countries. So basically, we have the prioritization of the environmental and energy needs of one region over the world at the expense of another region. So this is basically what is green colonialism. But then when we talk about that 
global energy transition or what they call energy transition. And I'll come back to that later because I don't believe that we are seeing really a global energy transition. But let's assume that there is a kind of a transition. First of all, it is happening unevenly, mainly in the global north and some pockets in the global south. I think we need to say this. But then this transition is predicated on the continuation of the extraction of basic metals and rare earth minerals from copper to cobalt to lithium to nickel to graphite and other rare metals and minerals. The question that we need to ask, where would these resources or these minerals come from? They would come from countries like the Democratic Republic of Congo, like Chile, Bolivia, Argentina, like Indonesia, where extractivist, predatory and destructive extractivist practices would be intensified and where exploitations of the local disciplined workers would continue and even be entrenched. So basically, we have the same system, the same imperialist capitalist system that we can call the colonial system, because I don't believe that the colonial era has ended. Neocolonialism is using new tools. So we have the same system, but just with a different source of energy. So they would like us to move from fossil fuels, even that there is a huge resistance to that towards green energy while maintaining the same patterns of domination, the same patterns of exploitation, and the same patterns of exclusion and plunder. This is basically green colonialism. And green grabbing refers to those dynamics of appropriation of lands and resources for supposedly green agenda. And in here, we have those conservation projects that displace indigenous communities from their land or those projects where communal land is confiscated in order to produce agrofuels instead of producing food and other projects where land is taken from agro-pastoralist communities without their consent and approval to build mega solar or wind projects. Let me now go specifically to some of the examples. So carbon trading or carbon markets have been hailed as the solution to the climate crisis. And we've seen them in the last two decades surfacing in the COPs, in the climate talks. And actually this year as well, they're going to be big. Because the capitalists of this world and the decision makers of this world, they do not want to take radical solutions or go to the root causes of the problem and stop any new projects of fossil fuels. They want to do it in a different way through these carbon markets and carbon trading or what they call carbon credits. Basically, carbon credits or carbon trading on all of this is just a euphemism for pollution permits. Basically, I think the simple idea behind them, and we can talk about it maybe in the discussion later, is if BP and Shell or ExxonMobil and Chevron would like to continue extracting oil and gas, in order for them to reach their net zero in two decades or something, what they would do, they would continue exploring and exploiting, but pay 
a company or somebody else in other parts of the world to plant a tree or conserve a forest. And then they equate these two phenomena together and they tell you, I'm doing my bit. But in reality, the CO2 emissions are not being cut. They just continue going up. And there are a lot of investigations and scientific studies and journalistic articles and analysis showing that all these carbon credits, most of them are just bogus. These companies try to make money out of the crisis. And one of them is this Emirati company, Blue Carbon, that is acquiring vast surfaces of land in Africa. Millions of hectares. Now I've been following this company in the last year and I've seen that it has acquired land in five African countries, Tanzania, Liberia, Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Kenya. And then when you look at the surfaces, you will be shocked. We are acquiring land, 10% of the area of Liberia, 20% of the area of Zimbabwe, and similar numbers in other countries to sell carbon credits or more accurately, pollution permits. And then they're going to use the same narrative that I described later. Those lands are empty. Those forests are empty. There is nobody. But in reality, those forests and those lands are being used by indigenous communities, by local communities, but those will be displaced. These will be out of the equations entirely. And the other argument around this is that Africa's share of global CO2 emissions is just 4%. So Africa's responsibility in causing the climate crisis or in pollution is very minimal. But what we are seeing right now is the shift of the responsibility from the richest countries, the North, and then the Gulf, the most polluting countries, they produce a lot of oil and gas, towards other poorer African countries. So if this is not colonialism, I know what it is. Let's go to Morocco. Morocco in 2016, at the time of the climate talks, the COP22, that were held in Marrakesh in the country that year, they launched this big project called the Warzazet. At the time, it was described as the biggest solar plant in the world. And I think it remains one of the biggest solar plants in the world using a technology called CSP, concentrated solar power. But then underneath that language or beyond that language of sustainability and green transition, you scratch a little bit below the surface and you see a bleak picture. First of all, it is a green grab. It is built on 3,000 hectares of collective lands taken from the pastoralist communities without proper consultation process. Until today, the communities around that solar plant are still complaining about this project because they are not seeing the benefits out of it. Second, the project contracted $9 billion of debts. $9 billion of debts from the World Bank, the African Development Bank, and from other European banks. And these come with what we call Moroccan guarantees. So the state of Morocco guarantees those debts. These are part of what some people and economists call de-risking strategies. Basically, if the project fails, those debts are going to be paid by 
the Moroccan state, which means the Moroccan citizens. So for a country like Morocco that is heavily indebted, this doesn't make sense. This is not a sovereign decision. And the project has been actually losing money because retrospectively they realized that they chose the wrong technology. It is costly. It's losing 80 million euros. And this has been documented. 80 million euros a year. And of course, who pays is the public purse, is the Moroccan citizens. And the companies that are running the project in what they call public-private partnership, which is another euphemism for the privatization of profits and the socialization of losses. That's what happens. The companies that are running the project, one of them is a Saudi company, Aquapower, with a Spanish consortium. These companies are not losing money at all. Actually, they are <laughs> securing their profits. But even when we analyze the green credentials of the project, we realize that it's using huge amounts of water to cool down the system and clean the panels. And that water is coming from a nearby dam that I visited three times, and I saw the levels of the water going down and down and down and down. The dam has dried, and the solar plant now is getting the money from another dam, from another area. But the water of that dam that should go to drinking water and agriculture has been dried out. So do you think that this is really a green project? So these are the questions that we are raising. Middled, the same story, what I call decarbonization by dispossession, like in reference to David Harvey's concept of accumulation by dispossession. This is another example of decarbonization by dispossession. This project is 450 kilometers to the northeast of Warzazet. The same story, the pastoralist communities have been protesting this project. Some of them have been jailed and they described it in very strong terms as an occupation. They say we're not benefiting out of it. If the few examples that I mentioned earlier can be, let's say, described as green grabbing, what is happening in occupied land in the Arab region, from Palestine to the Golan Heights to the Western Sahara, can be described directly and clearly as green colonialism. So the occupied zone of Western Sahara by the Moroccan monarchy also has projects there wind farms, solar plant built by the Moroccans. And this is basically green colonialism because it's happening in spite of Sahrawi's right for self-determination and that actually entrenches Morocco's occupation of the land and economic control. And this is happening with, of course, the complicity of foreign capital and foreign companies. In a very important chapter in the book, the Palestinian scholar and activist Manel Shqair described how Israel has been greening or greenwashing its colonialism. Israel has portrayed Palestine pre-1948 as an empty, parched desert which has become a blooming oasis after the establishment of the State of Israel. But in reality, Israel, as I said, is greenwashing its colonialism by covering up its war crimes against the Palestinian people 
by posing as a green and advanced country. And Manel also analyzes another phenomenon, which is what she calls eco-normalization, normalizations of relations with Israel or between Israel and other Arab countries in environmental and renewable projects, which further greenwashes colonialism and creates stronger relations between Israel and other Arab countries, which make the Palestinian cause secondary in terms of energy and water security. So there are projects that she analyzes, Project Prosperity between Israel and Jordan with the help of the Emirates. And then she highlights two Israeli companies, the ENLT and UMED, that are building various energy and green projects in Arab countries from Morocco to Emirates to Jordan to Egypt and to Oman. The other important section in the book touches on the liberalization of the renewable energy sector, its privatization, and its export orientation. And then it focuses also on the role of some international financial institutions like the World Bank in trying to push for that tendency, to push for the economies in the region to be opened up to foreign capital, to foreign companies, so they can accumulate more profits and plunder, basically, the resources. And articles from Egypt to Jordan to Morocco to Sudan and even Tunisia touch on this. And I'd like to focus a little bit on Tunisia. So Tunisia updated the law in 2019 allowing for the use of agricultural land for renewable energy projects. When we know that Tunisia suffers from an acute food dependency revealed during the pandemic and revealed during the current war in Ukraine, we wonder a transition for whom? Which transition are we talking about when we use agricultural land that should be used for food production? And something that we need also to bear in mind, that Tunisia's responsibility for causing the climate crisis is almost nil. Almost nil. It's 0.07%. So Tunisia's resources, Tunisia's money, should be going towards, first of all, its development goals. Countries in the global south have the right to develop and also ensure access to energy, but at the same time, tackle the impacts of the climate crisis, as Tunisia has been facing a drought for four years and suffers from a big water poverty. Uh, so the priorities are just lopsided because Tunisia is being pushed into this by foreign actors from the World Bank, from the EU, from international development agencies, such, such as the GIZ, and so forth. Let's now focus a little bit on the export projects. And this will show you clearly what I mean by neocolonialism and the ongoing relations of domination, plunder, and extraction. So this Tunur project that has been launched in 2017, it's still unrealized. They want to build the big solar plants in the south of Tunisia to export green electricity to Europe, to Italy, to the EU, and even to the UK. It's a joint venture between British, Maltese, and Tunisian capitalists, and it wants to feed around 
2 million to 5 million members in the European Union. And then at the same time, where the country is going through a political and socio-economic crisis, we see these beautiful people here in the picture, from the fascist Italian to the genocidal Ursula von der Leyen to the Dutch, going and striking a deal with the populist authoritarian president of Tunisia. And the idea is stop migration and encourage green export project. And this is not just happening in Tunisia, it's happening in Morocco as well. And Morocco actually is much more advanced in these neo-colonial dynamics. So in 2020, I read in Bloomberg about this X-Links project proposed by a British entrepreneur with a partnership with the Saudi company Aquapower. They want to build huge solar plants and wind farms in southern Tunisia and construct an undersea cable, the length of which is 3,800 kilometers, to bring green electricity from South Morocco to the south of the UK. 3,800 kilometers. And we are seeing the same patterns that I described under the fossil fuel and mining regime. Extraction, enclosure, land grabbing, and then they tell you those lands are empty. For me, it's just the usual colonial scheme that we are seeing where the global south continues exporting cheap natural resources, including green electricity, to the north, while Europe or the US build fortresses and walls and fences and let people die either in the Mediterranean or trying to cross those fences. So we are seeing the creation of green sacrifice zones. And I'm not going to go into details of the green hydrogen. Maybe we can have a discussion about it later. But it's the same story that we are seeing with green hydrogen. The EU wants other countries to shoulder the burden of its energy transition. So it goes to North African countries like Morocco, Egypt, Tunisia, and other African countries, uh, Namibia, South Africa. And then other countries in Latin America as well, we've seen in Chile and Argentina, especially Germany in this case, pushing for these countries to jump on the green hydrogen bandwagon, produce green hydrogen for export, just always for export. We don't even think about the local priorities. We don't even ask the questions, is green hydrogen the priority for those countries? Maybe it's green electricity, and, and that's what I believe. Because green hydrogen to produce it, for those who don't know, you need to produce green electricity first. And then you use green electricity to break down the water molecule, H2O, into hydrogen and oxygen. So for countries like Tunisia, where renewable energies are just under 3% in its electricity mix, it doesn't make sense for Tunisia to produce its green electricity to produce green hydrogen for export. The same thing for Morocco, even if it's advanced, for now, the electricity in Morocco is produced 20% by renewables. So most of its electricity is produced by fossil fuels. And Tunisia and Morocco depend on importing fossil fuels to produce their electricity. 
So it doesn't make sense, more sense for these countries to do these projects, to produce their own green electricity for their own citizens before thinking about export. So these are just questions that I always ask. But then we forget about ecological impacts of such projects in terms of land and in terms of water. Green hydrogen necessitates the building of desalination plants to desalinate seawater because you cannot use the seawater directly, at least for now, there are these technical concerns. But for countries that suffer from water poverty, continuing droughts, does it make sense to build the desalination plants for your own drinking water and to use that water in agriculture rather than using it to produce green hydrogen for export? So all these things, for me, just point to the continuation of colonialism or neocolonialism. I mentioned why I don't believe that there is an energy transition. We in TNI believe that there is a kind of an energy expansion, not energy transition. Like we're not seeing renewables replacing fossil fuels. We're seeing true. We are seeing a lot of investment in renewable energy, a lot of building of projects. But at the same time, we are seeing also an expansion of fossil fuels, more extraction, more building of pipelines, more building of ports, more fracking. And the numbers confirm this. When we look at how much the fossil fuel, global fossil fuel subsidies are in 2022, $7 trillion up from $5 trillion in 2020. So I think this says it all. And that's exactly what we've seen in the context of the war in Ukraine. So the EU wants to wean its dependence from Russian gas. So then we saw a dash and scramble for gas from various parts of the world. They told us that they don't want to get that gas from the dictator and authoritarian and imperialist Putin. But then they go to the military dictatorship in Algeria, the military dictatorship in Egypt the authoritarian regime of Qatar and the genocidal settler colonial state of Israel. It's just the argument doesn't stand. But whatever we think about that, I think what we are seeing is just more gas locking, more extractivism and more path dependency. There are two chapters on the Gulf and the book tries to point a picture that the Gulf countries, or let's say the Middle East in general, with, with Iraq and Algeria and Libya, play a noodle role in contemporary fossil capitalism. When we see the share of global oil production standing at 35 to 36% in 2021 and 2022, and when we see countries like Saudi Arabia, where the energy minister declared in 2021, we are still going to be the last man standing and every molecule of hydrocarbon will come out. And Adam Hania, in, in his brilliant chapter, he's also documenting another challenge to the global climate justice movement by describing the East-East hydrocarbon axis, which has developed in the last two decades with more ties and more strengthening of the relationships between the Gulf countries, especially Saudi Arabia, and East Asia, especially China. 
So he's sending a warning to the global climate justice movement saying that, yes, we need to target Western and Northern companies, fossil fuel companies, but we shouldn't be forgetting about Gulf companies like Saudi Aramco and other companies in the Gulf. So I'll just spend another five minutes and then I'll stop. So I'm going to tell you why this book, why now? Because we noticed that most of the writing and the analysis produced out there around the climate crisis or around the ecological crisis and the energy transition in the Arab region is dominated by international neoliberal institutions like the World Bank, EU agencies, German Cooperation, GIZ, and other international development agencies like USAID, the French Cooperation, the Italians, and so forth. But these agencies and these actors, first of all, they do not take into account questions of class, race, gender, power, justice, and colonial history. The solutions that they propose, top-down, market-based, they push forward for the privatization of everything from land, resources, water, food, and even the air through the carbon trading. And basically, their solutions do not go to the root causes of the problems that we do. So the book is an attempt to remedy that and to present an alternative perspective that challenges the state of affairs. And it tackles various dimensions of the climate crisis and the energy question and try to present ways and think of ways how to make that process equitable and just for its people. We have chapters from Western Sahara, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, Sudan, Jordan, Palestine, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Qatar. And then there are also regional articles that tackle various things. And the book adopts clearly a justice lens and a just transition framework. The just transition framework for us is not a technical transition, but a systemic one rooted in people-centered renewable energy system. And it entails a radical transformation of our political and economic system where working people in a broader sense are at the heart of such a vision. For us, the main principle of that just transition is that it is different in different places. There is no one solution that fits all. It is a class issue, so it needs to grapple with questions of power. It is a gender issue. It is an anti-racist framework. And it is more than just about climate and energy. It concerns all the economic system. It is about democratization, not just in the Arab region, but all over the world, including in the West. And it is a sovereign project and entails decolonization and anti-imperialism. I'll finish just with this that I think is very important. I think in any project that we think about, that we analyze, that we try to understand, I try to use political economy in the service of justice and decolonizations. And there are some key political economic questions that we need to ask. Who owns what? Who does what? Who gets what? Who wins and who loses? And whose interests are being served? 
the point is not just to ask those questions or to answer them for curiosity's sake or to write papers and books, but to analyze how capitalist and imperialist dynamics work in order to change the world for the best. Second, identify strategic targets and key nodal points for resisting, challenging, and intervening against capital. Third, uncovering the deceptions of capital trying to reproduce itself under the guise of the green economy while perpetuating the same patterns of plunder and dispossession. And fourth, and I think this is very important, build the needed and necessary alliances of working people to bring about transformational change and hopefully one day the end of the capitalist and imperialist system. So this book is intended as a tool for activists both in the Arab region and around the world to help them continue to pose critical questions and to build coalitions, alliances, and popular power in support of their own solutions for a just transition. And the book is right now as 50% discount, part of Pluto's liberation reads for Palestine, but the book is also open access. So there is a link in that page where you can just open access. Thanks for listening to me. I hope I haven't bored you too much. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube. And follow us on TikTok, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. You could not abort us, Hamza. Thank you so much. And it's so good to see you. I just want to let you know that when we originally created our podcast with Hamza, it was about a 90-minute episode. It was one of my all-time favorite episodes, but because of some illnesses that came to the team, we made a decision of splitting it in two. I would strongly suggest listening to the full two episodes that Hamza talked about with me in Macronchi's podcast. But Hamza, I just want to thank you for not mincing words, saying exactly what needs to be said. We are surrounded by careful speech that is so careful that it's meant to never offend when in reality, this is a very offensive subject. The plunder that is occurring, the disaster that we're experiencing to some large degree is unfelt by Americans because they just assume that this won't impact them. So your work in my mind is vital and I want to lift it up as high as I can so that we understand what's really happening. You can almost say the high cost of low prices. We had inflation and it's still low compared to what it would be. 
the impact on the countries around the globe that are being extracted from through this extractivist approach are almost ignored. Hamza, thank you so much. Really thankful for your work. I want to thank the team for putting this webinar on. All right. Looks like we got Mark Fabian question for end of the show. Go ahead, Mark. Hamza, welcome and thank you for being here. We all appreciate it. That was a great presentation and it gives everybody who hasn't had the opportunity to get the book yet a taste of what the book is all about. And I really appreciated why I opened up the table of contents that it looks more like a teacher's lesson plan, the way that the book is divided up. And I appreciate that. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate here, especially in light of what happened at the UN where the United States trumped the rest of the delegates on the ceasefire votes and just blew that up. How do you see global cooperation beginning to meet the challenges that we're facing right now, economically and environmentally? It seems with all of the neglect that could have been addressed 50, 60 years ago, to a lot of people, it seems that problems now are insurmountable. How do we overcome that? I think I get asked these questions each time. And I think this is the dilemma that we have as progressive movement, as progressive scholars and activists trying to change the world for the best. Because first of all, there is a fragmentation of our forces. There is the weakness of the left. And these are the realities. We are seeing that all the political systems in the world are shifting to the far right, in Europe, in Americas, in Africa, in Asia. So the context is bleak. But we can't be, how can I say, like, like Gramsci said, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I remain optimistic that hopefully in the mid to long term, things will be better, but we need to prepare for those and to keep organizing. But just to respond to your questions around the multilateral system that we see has simply failed, like the U.S. just blocking calls for a ceasefire. We are not asking for a revolution or the end of capitalism, just a ceasefire. So civilians' death would be minimized. Even that, we couldn't get it. And a lot of people all over the world feel powerless in face of that. And let's call it imperialist system. This is imperialism. And imperialism is death, is destruction. And clearly one bully, the U.S., just decides to ignore everybody else and does whatever it wants. So in the long term, we need to challenge and overthrow the imperialist capitalist system. That's the solution. And especially with the climate crisis. And I think we need to say it clearly, capitalism has failed to resolve the climate crisis and is taking us to the abyss. And I think we need to be clear with that. And we shouldn't try to paint it and say it in a good way. If we leave it to capitalism, if we leave it to the corporate sector with their false solutions, the carbon trading, the carbon market, and the net zero targets, 
they are going to take us to destruction and death. So we cannot believe in that system anymore. But we need to be realistic. Can we really do something else? Can we overthrow the system right now? We can't. So this is the reality. But there are things that can be done in the short term. First of all, the survival of our ideas and our movements. We need to keep pushing. We need to keep educating new cadres, new students. We need to raise awareness about those issues. And I believe that we need to continue doing that every day and every hour of the day because people are brainwashed. Even in universities, they are brainwashed. That's one thing. The second thing is limit the damage. So for me, even if I criticize the COP process, the climate talks, I still have friends and comrades and partner organization going inside the COP to keep the pressure, at least to limit the damage. But at the same time, as a climate justice movement, we try to build from the outside, inside and outside. But in the UN process and the UN Security Council, clearly that needs to be reformed. Clearly it's not democratic. One vetoes and that's it, so nothing passes. That system, we need to challenge it. And how do we challenge it? First of all, building power from the outside, power for our social movement, for our organizations, linking the dots between various forms of struggle, climate justice, energy justice, food sovereignty, democracy, social justice, workers' rights, feminist movements, indigenous communities' rights. We need all to build connections between these struggles. But at the same time, we are seeing that the world is shifting to a multipolar world. And the U.S. is scared, and that's why it's reacting in this bad way. So the idea is to try to see if there is room for maneuver for our movements in that multipolar world, to create stronger movements, to shift the power balances in our favor. And this is a revolutionary project. It needs to have strategy, some tactics short and medium and long-term goals. And it needs to be internationalist. We cannot just separate what happens in the U.S. with what's happening in the Arab region. What's happening in the Arab region separate from the African or the European contexts. We need to have the internationalist perspectives that connect the dots. And you mentioned like the ceasefire. So in the case of Palestine, transnational solidarity comes through also worker struggles to block factories that deliver weapons and surveillance and all weapons to the genocidal Israeli colonialism. These are just a few thoughts. And to be honest, this needs to be reflected and concretized by movements and political parties and organizations. It's not just one individual who, who have a blueprint. Thank you, Hamza. I keep thinking about that Franz Fanon comment that colonialism is violence in its natural state. It's really something we can't forget, even though it's banking and money and so remote from day-to-day -day lives. It's the level of violence. I so appreciate what Steve said, because that's exactly what we're facing, is people who are in denial 
about the level of violence that even the financial pages of the Wall Street Journal are talking about. I loved what you said, and I think we all need to remember it. And I'm going to turn it over to Kami John to read Flo's question, please. Flo asks, financial imperialism appears to inform how these huge green projects are structured as predatory debt traps that result in increased privatization of the global South economies for the benefit of the imperial core. What would a fair and more just financial dynamic look like to implement a real green transition across the globe? What would be required to get there? What is preventing it currently? Very good question. I think whenever we do the diagnosis of the problem, always people ask, what is the alternative? And it's not as if there is a lack or absence of people or movements thinking or proposing alternatives. People are doing it. I'm just going to put a few ideas that will maybe sketch the contours of such a just energy transition or just green energy transition that would challenge imperialism. First of all, this is a program that cannot be installed overnight. Second, we cannot separate the energy or the climate question from the broader economic question. So the energy transition, if we want to, to be just, first of all, we need to democratize and decolonize the economic system, especially for countries in the global south. Energy question needs to be put in a vision, in a vision towards decolonization, towards democratization, and towards sovereignty, which entails an anti-imperialist and an anti-colonial mentality and practices. Third of all, what we are seeing in the Arab region and in other countries in the global south, because it's not just in the Arab region, the Arab region, maybe there are many examples, but it's also happening in other African countries, in Latin America. And I can give you examples later on about Namibia, what I'm seeing in terms of green hydrogen there, which is green hydrogen colonialism. We are seeing, as you say, the externalization of costs and the shift of the responsibility for the energy transition towards countries that have not been historically responsible for causing the climate crisis. And this is happening through blackmail, either through the question of debt. So if you need money, we need you to do something. It comes always with conditions. So they pressure you to do certain stuff. And also trade agreements. The global trade architecture enforces a certain way of doing things, enforces what people call an equal economic and ecological exchange. So we are still seeing those core periphery-like relationships being maintained through trade agreements. And this is a way to shift in or siphoning off the surplus value at the global level. So still the global north, and in here the Europe and the US, taking the wealth, sucking the wealth from other countries and this happens through trade, happens through debt, happens through the primacy of the dollar and the control of the exchange rates, and also happens through other mechanisms such as 
allowing for the illicit capital flows, the tax havens that we are seeing in various parts of the global north where our military dictators and authoritarian regimes and corrupt leaders in the global south are allowed to send more capital to the north. So we are still seeing a bleeding and a drain, a wealth drain. This needs to be challenged. In concrete examples around the energy transition. So first of all, one thing that we need to talk about and the climate justice movement has been pushing for it is what we call the question of climate finance. And for me, I call it climate reparation and climate debt. Who is responsible for causing the climate crisis? It's the industrialized West. And there is no doubt about it. It's documented. And even the UN process recognizes this by saying that the responsibility for climate crisis is common, collective, but differentiated. So there are various levels of responsibilities. Those climate finance, we haven't seen it materialized. And for me, it shouldn't be in the form of loans and additional debts on global South countries. It should be transfer of wealth and technology. We are seeing an escalating climate crisis. We need to move fast towards renewable energy. Some countries need to tackle the impacts of climate crisis. There is no other way. There needs to be a shift of wealth and technology from north to south. And the climate justice movement is pushing for this through, let's say, imperfect and contradictory mechanisms like the loss and damage fund that has been announced last year in the COP27. And this year there are promises, but still they are not legally binding. So the movement needs to push to make these promises legally binding and the money needs to flow to North and South. So this is one thing that we could push for. The second thing is countries in the global South do not have to prioritize the energy transition. Of course, they have the responsibility to move and when they have the resources to do so, why not? But the priority should be their development agenda. They have the right to develop and they should continue to develop. And in cases that they need to use their own resources, they have the right to use their own resources. And as I said, the priority is also to tackle the impacts of climate crisis that are creating huge economic and environmental challenges. Just an example, Tunisia, as I said, has been going for four years of prolonged droughts. So they have issues of water. Rather than putting its money for the energy transition, it should put it, or at least the money that hopefully it will get from the north, it should put it to find other sources of water, like build desalination plants, and also maybe transform its own agricultural model, which is extractivist and predatory, because it is lopsided. Tunisia sends water-intensive products to Europe, like tomatoes, oranges, lemons, mandarins, strawberries, olives. So all of this is water and land intensive, while it imports its grains. And this has been shaped by colonialism and neocolonialism. Why? So we need to transform that system. The other element that I think points to positive trend that I'm seeing, that's why I was talking about the multipolar world, because there is contestation of the global north coming from the BRICS, for example. They are, of course, they are imperfect. I don't see them as, as the solution, but at least they are creating some rooms to maneuver. Like there are countries 
who have a lot of critical raw material that are needed for the energy transition. Indonesia is one of them. They have nickel that can be used in electrical car batteries. And Indonesia said, I'm not going to send this nickel as raw material. I'm going to process it inside Indonesia, create more value added, create more jobs, industrializing in the process, move up the value chain and challenge the dependency that I've been inserted into or the dependent role that I've been inserted into the global capitalist economy. But then this is not an easy process. You need the willingness of the political rule and economic ruling classes. And this is not present everywhere because a lot of the ruling classes in the global south are comprador and dependent, and they just follow the dictates of foreign capital. But also they benefit from what Panon said, the organized robbery of their nation's wealth. But then when Indonesia decided to do this, guess what happened? The EU took them into court inside the WTO, the World Trade Organization, using that there is free trade agreement between Indonesia and the EU, not allowing Indonesia to industrialize. Basically, the EU is saying, how dare you industrialize? How dare you process your resources in your own country? So there are constraints that need to be challenged. That's why I'm saying it's not an easy process. We need to think all about those issues. Climate reparations, we need to push for it. We need to push for the cancellation of debts because debts and the interests that a lot of countries in the global south are still paying limit the space or the policy space or the maneuver for those countries to tackle the climate crisis, to develop, and also to move towards renewable energy. So there are all these elements that I think could provide a certain way how to move there, but I think they're not enough. They need to be part of a coherent and comprehensive political and economic vision because at the end of the day, energy like health, education, transport, housing should be a public good. It shouldn't be a commodity. It shouldn't be allowed to be controlled by the private sector or the corporate sector that are only interested in making profits. These need to be decommodified, deprivatized. And there are a lot of experiences in the world that are doing this. So the book is pushing against privatization and liberalization. And it's not just focusing on the state as such. The state needs to play a role. But we need to empower communities. We need to empower workers to embrace that energy transition. Because for a country like Algeria or Libya, who employ a lot of people in the oil and fossil fuel industry, workers need to be part of that energy transition. They need to be retrained. They need to be playing a role in that green transition. But that is a process that need to be thought alongside other issues of decolonization. Samir Amin, who is my favorite dependency theorist, talks about delinking. We need delinking. 
we need to delink from the imperialist and capitalist system. And this is a project that cannot be done in one country. So regional integrations needs to happen. And there are possibilities. But at the same time, you need to democratize because the elites, let's say, in just in the Maghreb, Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco, they're not democratic uh, national elites. They're only interested in filling their pockets. So how can you create that regional, political, and economic integration? But there are some examples, like I see in Latin America, between Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia, who are trying to create a kind of a lithium OPEC to challenge the dependency to global markets, to get a better price for the lithium, to move up the value chain, because on your own, you cannot do it. I think this is a mishmash of various ideas. I don't know if they are coherent, but this is the best I could do. Yeah, very coherent, actually. So we're going to go to Cheryl Van Epps, but first, Amy asks, she said she tuned in late and she wanted you to plug your book one more time. What was the title? The title is Dismantling Green Colonialism, Energy and Climate Justice in the Arab Region. I think you can get that over at the realprogressives.org bookshop. So we'll go to Cheryl Van Epps. Cheryl asks, what I see as a result of capitalism, our communities and the public in general, feelings of powerlessness, alienation, isolation, and betrayal by our governments. Would appreciate hearing what your observations are of the folks of the Arab region. How can we overcome the psychological hurdle these feelings create to get folks to initiate engagement in our movement? Yeah, I would say it's a global tendency. It's not just in the U.S. People feel powerless as individuals because there has been a lot of fragmentation and that's what capitalism does. It reduces you to a consumer, to an individual. That's how capitalism sees us. Selfish individuals seeking their own interests. And capitalism has infiltrated all aspects of our life, commodified every aspect of it, to the point that some people say, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. And this is true. But as any system in the world, and this is based on historical observations and historical materialism, any systems has a beginning and an end. That capitalist system cannot go forever. It will crumble. And we are seeing the intensification of its contradictions. And we have an escalating climate crisis that could bring an end to capitalism. But hopefully it won't bring an end to humanity and the planet as a whole. So in the Arab region, I think one thing that we need, I'll try to answer this question in two ways. First of all, when we think about capitalism and how to tackle it, we need to think as collectivities as organizations, as groups. We cannot see it just on our own. When we think about it on our own, yeah, it's just despair and hopelessness. So we need to continue organizing, organizing, and organizing. Second, people always rise. People are not passive victims, never. And we've seen in the last decade, two waves of uprisings. The first one started in 2010, 2011 with Tunisia, Egypt, and it spread to around 12 countries. 
at the time, people were proud to work like an Egyptian. What we've seen in Tahrir Square, it was so inspiring. Nobody believed that people could rise and overthrow Mubarak at the time. Of course, that has been defeated. This is reality. Most of the revolutions, actually, uprisings in history have been defeated. The French Revolution took more than a century to transform the monarchy into a republic. And we still celebrate the French Revolution. It takes time. And people learn from those experiences and those mistakes. And we've seen a second, even though that first wave has been defeated, we've seen another second wave started in Sudan and then went to my home country, Algeria, and then Iraq and Lebanon. That wave has been defeated too, and we should say it. But people learn that those regimes are not invincible. Those elites can be overthrown. But they learn also to connect the dots, that it's not just about political rights. It's not just about elections, overthrowing one person. It's about overthrowing the whole system and connecting the questions to economic and social sovereignty. And Tunisian people have realized this. But counter-revolutionary forces, not just in Tunisia, but at the regional and international level came down on them. So that's why people need to be aware and to continue organizing, not just as individuals, but as groups, as organizations, as social movements, building power, building power till you shift the balance. But I'll be honest with you, for change to happen in the region, at least in the Arab region towards the best, there has to be some change in the US and Europe. Your systems needs to be democratized, shifted more towards progressive and lefty forces to give much more space to other movements in the global South to move and construct. Because as long as we have the same systems in the US and the EU, the pressure and even the support to military dictatorship, to authoritarian figures would continue. And wars, and what we've seen with Palestine is just emblematic of that. If there was a better or more progressive regime in the US and EU, I'm not saying that it's going to resolve all the issues, but at least it will give some space to move and do stuff. So it's the conjunction of those things happening at the same time more organizing in certain parts of the world and more organizing in other parts in an internationalist vision, in a transnational solidarity that would create, hopefully, that better dream that we aspire to. Thank you. I recently watched the Battle of Algiers again for the first time in 50 years. When I was coming up, and there are a few of us in this audience, it was right in the middle of the anti-colonial struggles, the National Liberation Fronts, Vietnam, which in my country we called the Vietnam War, but it was a national liberation struggle. And when I saw Battle of Algiers again, I was thinking about the fact that colonialism has become so much more sophisticated and complicated, and because it's so much of it is economic. and. As we were reminded in Gaza, the same old shit is still going on. The military version of it, the more simple version, I guess I would call it. But the fact that it has become so much more sophisticated and complicated 
put so much more weight on us. Our solutions have to be just as sophisticated and complex. And one thing you said a little while ago is that capitalism can't survive. As we've seen throughout history, economic systems become bloated and put too much pressure on the working people. But the problem is there's no guarantee we will move to the next system. Civilizations have disappeared. And the fact that we can now destroy the planet either quickly or slowly, depending on whether it's climate change or thermonuclear war, puts the pressure on us. This is life or death. We are under emergency conditions. And certainly in the U.S., when we look around at the left, it doesn't feel like people are aware it's an emergency. Who else has a question, Tommy John? Cole put a question in there, and we had actually chatted about this right after the podcast. He asks, are these properties, and I believe he's referring to the land that's sectioned off or not able to be used, it's privatized or whatever, are these properties used for development or is it vacant to be used as carbon absorption? You've mentioned the sectioned off some land. Is it the Blue Carbon Company? Yeah. It is the one. So what they're doing, this blue carbon company, and it's not just blue carbon, the Emirati company, there are other companies as well, from the West to Asian companies, trying to acquire lands in other parts of the world to sell this, what they call carbon offsets or carbon credits, which are, as I said, pollution permits. Mainly, the land is forests. They say we're going to conserve those forests, so people won't cut the trees. And basically, the forest will suck the CO2, commodifying nature. That's what they are doing exactly, commodifying nature and commodifying the air, instead to those companies that would continue polluting and, and emitting CO2. But in many parts of the continent, at least regarding that blue carbon company that I mentioned, a lot of people are raising the alarm that those lands are used by indigenous communities and by local communities. So they're not really empty and they are not really a pristine nature. So it's gonna impact the local communities. But my argument does not just stop there. My argument, first of all, those are for solutions. They are not gonna reduce CO2 emissions. That's what capital does. It puts deceptions out there and it tries to benefit from the crisis. And that's what Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism. You have a disaster and suddenly all capitalist actors tries to benefit and push these kind of solutions. And these solutions have been proven in the last two decades that they do not work, but they are still continuing doing it. That's one. The second thing is if you believe that they are solutions, carbon offset and carbon trading, Okay, go and do it in your own land or in your own country. Why do you shift it to continents and countries that have not caused the climate crisis? And the other elements that I haven't said, in all the deals that Blue Carbon has done, most of the money of these projects, 70% of the money that would be raised by these projects would go to the company. This is just pure colonialism and it's not resolving the questions at all 
And a similar story is seen in other big solar plants and wind farms. I didn't mention Namibia, and I'll finish on this. And I think Namibia is very important because it exemplifies that green colonialism that I'm talking about in many dimensions. Namibia has agreed to build big projects of green hydrogen. And as I said, you need solar plants, wind farms to produce green electricity, and then you need water to be desalinated, green electricity to be used in order to break the water, produce green hydrogen, and green hydrogen, you transform it into green ammoniac, and then that green ammoniac goes by ships to Germany. That project is owned by a company, mostly German, but also there are British entrepreneurs in it. So it is a privatized project. Second, the Namibian government is only entitled to own 24%, not even a fourth, 24% of the project. And it needs to fund it, which means it needs to put money into that project. That money is going to be obtained how? By additional loans. So the Namibian government is one of the least developed countries in the world, is going to get loans and additional debts in order to get 24% of a project that is being built on its own land. And then the things get even worse. 45% of the Namibian population does not have access to electricity. 45%. In other African countries, it's much more. In certain African countries, it goes to 60, 70, 80%. And the electricity that it produces in Namibia actually doesn't produce. It gets from its neighbor, South Africa. So at least half of the population does not have access to electricity, and it does not have self-sufficiency even to produce electricity for the other half of the population. But now we have this project that is going to produce green electricity in order to create green hydrogen for export. Why? I think the priority is to produce green electricity to provide cheap green electricity for your own citizens. And this needs to be a nationalized project. This needs to be a sovereign project. If you don't have technology, those companies need to be forced by local laws and regulations to transfer the technology. And the money, if we were in an ideal world for this project, needs to be climate reparations. And then if, when Namibia reaches self-sufficiency in energy, it can export. But we don't see that. That's why it's ecological imperialism. It's green colonialism. It's the same story again and again and again. And we need to cut through this deception and this bullshit to say it clearly. Thank you for listening to me. I tend to talk a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> Steve Grumbine is our leader. We're used to it. <laughs> it's gold. It was so brilliant. I really want to talk with you. We have to figure out timing, but how to do more with you. I just think everybody is excited and we need to have more. And of course, the video will be available on the Real Progressives YouTube channel. Our other channel is called Real Progress in Action for those who don't know. 
please be sure to listen to Fadl Kaboob's interview on macro and cheese. It fits very well with this one. Oh, and don't forget the fundraiser. If you go to realprogressives.org, there's a little donate thing right at the top of the page. You'll get matching funds. Well, we will get matching funds. You can get a T-shirt if you give $100. And these things are expensive. We pay a lot just for the damn Zoom platform for our virtual office space for our editing equipment or programs. All of the things we use to bring great content to everyone. Go ahead, Tommy John. We're going to be getting together on Tuesday to do our regular macro and chill. And we'll be discussing it and doing a little deep dive. So we hope you can join us. We take the podcast and we throw in some graphics and some captions and we'll play 15 minute chunks of it. And then we'll stop and have a group discussion. And it's a real good time and get to ask some questions. And if you've listened to the podcast, maybe you had something you wanted to ask or point out, that's the perfect place to do it. We usually have about 20, 30, 40 people. And it's just a real nice little community of smarty pants people. We have good discussions. It's great. We'll put the link out and we'd love you to join us. Great. Thank you. Hamza, thank you again for being so generous with your time and information. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Adios. We'll see you guys around. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives. I want the truth!